0: You are listening to the message by Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. Uh, We have the title of this message, Such a View of Things. This phrase specifically I came across in Philippians And it caught my eye as I was reading the passage. And when a key phrase catches my eye, I use it as kind of uh, the anchor or the center of what God is trying to tell me. I recommend that in your study. If you're reading the Bible and there's a phrase you read, you may not recognize it. You might not understand it. Just for some reason, it sticks out. If you meditate on it, if you go after it and seek it and answer the questions... That are in your mind, by further study of the same passage, that God will speak to you. That's why His word is alive. And when I see phrases like this, specifically, "Such a view of things," uh, I want to go to that part where this is mentioned, Philippians chapter three, verse 15. "All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things." Now this is interesting because it speaks of maturity. Uh, We already know that there are different levels of maturity in the body of Christ. There are some who are just drinking milk. There are other meat eaters out out there. Last night uh, we were invited out for dinner and we had the most amazing steak I've had in a very long time. You ever see a tomahawk? The big long bone with the meat on it? It was that. I have pictures I'll show you later just for drooling purposes. Delicious, medium rare, delicious. I'm a meat eater. I am, I'm gonna be real honest. I am not a vegan, I have to confess that right now. I'm sorry if it disappoints you. I am nowhere near a vegan. I am a meat eater, I like eating meat, and and, um, I am in the spirit Uh, for 35 years. I didn't always eat meat. For a long time I I drank milk and was happy with milk, and those were the first few years, but I developed an appetite very quickly. Uh, My metabolism ran very high as a spirit creature. Meaning that when I first got saved, God put me on a fast track of development, which means my my metabolism jacked up quick and I began to desire more and more. I was voracious. Every teacher, I beg them to teach me everything. So I ate a lot and learned a lot and of course to whom much is given much is required but I cannot calculate the thousands of hours I've stood in many nations teaching and preaching the things that I receive. So freely I've received, freely I give and meat eaters are usually the people who are in fact serving other people. People who are, in fact, the number one thing that will produce a meat eater in the Bible or in um, a spiritual life is someone serving other people. If you lay your life down for your brother, if you work for others, if you bless them, if you are in a position to have to teach, a position to have to encourage, a position to fellowship and reach out, evangelize and pray for people, that will cause your spiritual appetite to increase extremely, and therefore milk is not enough anymore. You need meat. And as you do, you ask God, and God will feed. You, those things, so all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. So now you're asking, Well, what does this mean? Paul's suggesting here, pretty quickly and clearly, uh, his perspective concerning the way we see ourselves. The way we see ourselves, Uh, not like when you look in the mirror, you take a selfie, but. When you look at your own heart, you look in your mind, you start thinking about yourself. It's very important that we be introspective. That we be looking inside, considering our own motivations. And Paul speaks about in this passage that we're going to study tonight because obviously such a view of things is said after the things he's wanting us to see. In other words, such a view means such a perspective. A word, paradigm which means worldview. Our paradigms are dependent upon our upbringing, our culture, that's the way we see things. And everybody's paradigm is different. But Paul had a specific perspective, the way he saw himself, and he writes about it and suggests that we follow his example. How we see ourselves in the grand scheme of life, uh, what Paul's teaching us is kind of a template that we could follow or an example. He mentions it with so much authority here and there's a couple of places in the scriptures where Paul says basically, look, there, there's no other way to see this. Uh, there's like four or five places. We won't go to all of them. But where Paul basically says, and as far as I'm concerned, in all the churches, there is no other tradition. He says that concerning some protocols in the churches and other places. He's like, this is where we draw the line. And this perspective that he's discussing is one of those where he repeats it again in many letters but here in this he calls it such a view of things if you're mature you have to take this view you have to see it this way And he mentions it with this authority that he says if you have an alternate view the Lord will show you later we'll see that passage if you think differently than I think he says in this passage later that God's going to straighten you out that's basically what he says I mean I'm opinionated Honestly, you have to be opinionated to be a preacher, you know, because you have an opinion and you're sharing it. And I believe in my opinions. I don't know if I resonate that I do not believe, but I do believe what I preach. And I, I, I speak the things that are real to me. Paul had a very strong opinion about many things. And here he's talking about our self view the way that we look at ourselves, and his opinion is high. So apparently he was thoroughly convinced about this subject when he wrote to the Philippians. His perspective was convincing to himself and therefore to us, and it's what God wants for all of us. So given that he felt so strongly about this view, I think that uh, we would say these things, such things, such a view as he has. We should take it seriously. How many of you agree with me? If Paul, the great apostle, is saying, you who are mature should take such a view of things. Now, he is excluding those that may not be able to grasp this. In other words, the immature. But I can look around this room. We don't have any immature here. I think we're all pretty much mature believers growing and learning in the Lord. So this is for us. So in this message, we're going to look at this passage of scripture. And I'm going to show you five points of proper perspective in life. We begin with the first one. Number one. It is a trap to use your natural worth to assess your spiritual condition. And this is the thing. Sometimes we self analyze, but we use a different value system. And that's what this is all about an exchange of values. Philippians 3 4, he says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, (laughs) persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now this is Paul talking about, of course, his former self and his upbringing, his education. So he gives us a list of qualifications here, really, achievements much like you would if you had some type of academic career, you went to university, you get certain diplomas, you get a doctorate, your bachelor's, and on. You then get, you know, maybe you're a PhD. You would throw that around. Not only would you throw it around, but you would use the paper it's printed on to get jobs and such, of course. That is part of this world system, the way it works. And now Paul had that. Uh, He complied with and excelled in all the areas of his social belonging. This is before he knew Jesus. He already was very high ranking in authority, in power, in education. He claims his blood rights here just by reason of birth. He mentions that, you know, some of you people think you are something special. Well, if anybody has room to brag, it's me, he says. I am amazing. He's he's telling him, of course, he's using this as an example. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of uh, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a, I am ai am a Benjaminite. I am from one of the greatest tribes with one of the greatest legacies in histories of all the Jews. I am I'm not just a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. I'm like the Mac Daddy Hebrew. I mean, you got Hebrews out there, but I'm Hebrew with capital letters, upper caps Hebrew. Like, When you go into the Hebrew recruiting office, the poster boy is me. You see my picture on the wall, and they say, you need to be like this guy. That's what he means when he says this. So he's bragging about his association by blood. He's bragging about the fact that he has, if he had something to depend upon, if the value system was such that he once lived, and that's what we're getting at is, you're going to see him describe a transformation of values. His system was radically altered, and we need this. Maturity is, and this is all part of the view he's wanting us to see as mature believers, the view that we see, the way that we think, and Paul is is addressing it that, yes, maybe we are part of a good family. Maybe we have blood rights. That's good. He also claims his religious orientation and his adherence to the law. He was a very good Jew. He was a Jew of Jews. He mentions his enthusiasm when he says zeal and his record of success, persecuting the church. In other words, amongst his peers, these are the same people who crucified Jesus, amongst his peers in the pharisaical realms, he was an agent to bring destruction to the disease of Christianity or those of the way. He was commissioned, and had letters or authority from the high priest, the very highest ranking individual, to go into Damascus and to go from house to house in his zeal, consumed by that zeal, go and arrest these people who believed in Jesus to persecute them, even murder them, he mentions in another place, have them stoned to death, and hold courts, and bring order to stoning. You remember, that's what Stephen, when Stephen was stoned, that's who was there. Saul of Tarsus stood in authority over the whole stoning. And they put all their garments as his tradition at his feet. He kept them as a record so he would know all of those to be rewarded within their society for having killed Stephen. And so this is what he's talking about. His enthusiasm, his record of success. He claimed his goodness based upon the law here. He says, uh, as for righteousness based on the law. He says... Faultless. You know how big it is to say that you are faultless? This is saying I was perfect. Now, I don't think Paul at this point, because this is far after his experience with Christ, he's not lying. He really was faultless. This means in his conscience and his understanding, he was able to fulfill all of the law. Everything in Deuteronomy, everything in Numbers, then we've all read that, and of course, it's rather boring. Uh, it's interesting if you look at it theologically as an example. But wow, imagine having to live by every single one of those laws. If he had a house, he had a banister on the roof of his house. If he had a garment, it had phylacteries and little tassels on. If he had all the law, he kept it per- perfect. And so it's interesting here. He's mentioning all this first because my point being that it's a trap for us to use our natural worth. His natural worth that he learned from a physical world afforded him a great position in his culture with great reward. That's the beginning. That's where we... Now, he says in one scripture, you know, not many wise, not many noble. You know your calling. But in his case, he was wise and he was noble. And that's what he means... Because a lot of people who were coming to Christ were the people who had nothing to lose. And the people who were... That's me. Basically, that's me. I had nothing. Three years in eighth grade, dropped out of ninth drug dealer and a thief. I mean, of course. I got saved and stepped up to Christianity. I mean, I stepped up to a higher... Getting saved for me, not just spiritually, but the people I then was hanging out with, the church people, were far superior to me. I grew by getting saved. But not everybody's like that. And Paul... It's like when you meet academics, you meet brilliant people. Uh, Every week I have a meeting with smart people where I sit and talk with them. These are people that um, are not my same view. Uh, One particular atheist I spend a lot of time talking to, I enjoy his company, and he is so smart, it's dizzy, and I use him as an encyclopedia. If I need to know something, I can ask him, and he knows it. He's from the U.K., hyper-educated, super smart, avid reader. And so virtually any subject, it's crazy. Anything I talk to him about, he knows more than me. And so he's like this. He's in this category. So my job now with him, and if he's watching this, he knows it, so it's okay. Okay. Because he knows, he's, it's, I'm not fooling him, and he's not fooling me. Literally, he comes to me for these conversations. And I'm trying to get him to shift values. I'm trying to get him to understand the existence of God. Of course, he totally uh, says that uh, he does not exist. But thus far, we're moving our way forward in our friendship. But he could be this. But Paul was this. And the hard thing here is that after all of this, that Paul recognizes as important among the people of his society, he discovered that his migration from this life to the spiritual life that Christ had for him would force him to enter a world where none of his achievements would carry any value whatsoever. Imagine that. Uh, those of you who have been to university and you have your degrees, you have your work experience. Suddenly, God snatch you out of your universe and put you somewhere where not one single thing that you've labored to learn, and suffered in school, and exams, and everything, all the money spent on education, if none of that, just you have to ball up every certificate and diploma, rip it up, throw it in the fire, because it's now worthless. That is the kind of transition that Paul had to make. And that's why he's laying this foundation, these things that he was, what he believed, what he felt. And this was such a a serious change because he'd entered this world where none of those achievements in the flesh and in the mind uh, would matter at all. And that brings us to number two. We must realign our value system of self to that which prioritizes Jesus. Philippians chapter three, verse seven. It says, but whatever were gains to me, in other words, the things that were advantageous for me before, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. I like that word garbage. It's actually dung or crap, or whatever, poo-poo. In the Greek, it's a, it's a heavy word for refuse. They just They kindly put garbage here. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And really, there's three considerations of Paul here that we see. Because he says this word consider three times in that passage we just read. But whatever work gains to me, I now consider loss. In other words, Paul accepted that the sum total of his hard work and development of mind, character, and social standing was lost because of his association with Jesus. What an expensive relationship. Wow, what a, an expensive. Expensive transition to be made to leave everything you know when Jesus was on earth I was teaching this this morning in one of the earlier services when Jesus was on earth he polarized people on purpose into two categories later we know them as sheep and goats we see it as always though two groups but he created cultures by teaching things that forced people to make a choice to be in one of two categories and all of his teachings did this. He created a culture of faith. Those that came to him and believed him and accepted him and accepted his teachings, even when it was hard, even when it was so rough, most of the people left him and just his disciples remained. He, he maintained that culture. The other culture was that of the culture of, of hate and the culture of rejection. And he did not let anybody fall between the cracks of those two groups. He so provoked people that you chose one or the other. You either loved him or you hated him. I think it's a pretty good approach to life. He was not looking to carefully, diplomatically, or politically correctly uh, orient himself in society. His lines were so extreme that you loved him and wanted to make him king. Because that f- that group of faith actually tried to make him a king by force. And he had to stop them and run away from them. So they loved him that much that they would put him on the throne. But he wasn't, he wasn't here for that, not yet. But that other group, they hated him. All they ever wanted to do now, because the more he talked to them, the more they wanted to hate him, I mean kill him. And they eventually started you know, conniving and finding a way, to scheming his death. And he made it so clear. Toward the very end, the camps were so extreme. And this society actually was what Paul was born into. So Paul, Saul of Tarsus, by the time he comes to Jerusalem, Jesus has spent three and a half years, remember what he said, don't think I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring division. Now he's got these two political groups in Judea that basically you meet each other and it's like, you a believer in Christ? Yes, okay, you're with me. No, get out of here. Like it was that extreme. You could you lose your business, you know, the man born blind when he insisted on confessing Christ. His parents kind of stayed in the wrong group. And that's where he said in that same passage where he talks about these divisions, because he names the Pharisees and the lawyers in one group, and then the people who believe in the other group, and he says to them, Well, you know what, if you confess me before them, I'll confess you before the angels of God in heaven. I'll mention your name to the Father. But if you deny me in front of them. See that was another way of forcing the people of faith to make that choice. And Paul had already clearly made the choice. To be in the culture of hate against the principles of Christ. And he already had determined and was functioning. As an assassinator of the people who believed that. He was taking it by force and going to bring down. He wanted to obliterate that culture that Jesus worked so hard to create. And that's why Jesus said, man, I need to straighten this guy out. He's not going to stop. He's such a powerful force in his personality, his nature, that Jesus came down in the form of light like the noonday sun. Boom! Showed up in the road and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Uh, Why are you kicking against the pricks? It's like, why are you petting the cat backwards? I always Why are you fighting against the flow? Because he knew in his heart he wanted... To love God. He knew that he was desiring. To please God. And Jesus had compassion. Came down and reoriented him. But he didn't do it instantly. He basically slapped his hand. Like you do a toddler. And the lip comes out. And he says now you go in this room. And you think about. For three days he was blind. Thinking about what he had done. Finding out now. That it's actually Jesus I've been fighting against. The Christ. The real Messiah. And what a turnaround. That was his form. So this is why he's speaking out of these considerations. I found that the depth of one's intimacy and relationship with Jesus. Corresponds often to the depth of loss. They have had because of him. I find people that can get saved. And they don't really lose a lot. And so there 's not a lot of intimacy with the Lord. The people, however, that may be born in cultures within Islam, within Buddhism, within more extreme places where Christians are hated, those people will develop a deeper a deeper passion. People in communist countries, for instance i 'm sure you 've all seen the videos of the Chinese Christians receiving the Bibles and crying and glorifying God for these such a deep love and I met these pastors from Laos Caleb and I went and met them wow what amazing what amazing their passion living in that country where most of the people that we were talking to had already done prison sentences for their faith their intimacy was embarrassing to me like I felt like I didn't really know God like that which provoked me Not to want to go out and get arrested, but it provoked me to to be more adamant about my search for him. So I found that that depth is there. And Paul had this uh, because of what he lost at this point. And it made him intimate with Jesus. It does not mean that he was not saddened by it, you understand. And that's why he's he's writing it because he's telling you, I lost a lot. He wasn't like, yeah, I lost a lot, man. I lost everything. (laughs) No, there is a remorse in his tone. He's counting it as loss. And he knows it's better, but yes, it hurt. Sure, it hurt. And you know, at nights, lying by himself, when it really got rough, he had to think thoughts that he never wrote in letters. Come on. We read the letters if I write a letter to you, I don't write everything that pops into my tiny brain. I craft the letter. How I many of you have ever written a letter and then hold the delete button down and rewrite it and do it again? Because re- you're crafting and curating your message. Well, what if you could just access Paul's mind when he was in the deepest, most difficult moments? I promise you, he felt the weight of the loss of the sacrifices he made. And that's the thing about sacrifice, isn't it? If it doesn't hurt, it's not a sacrifice. There's no comfortable crosses. It has to hurt. And this is what Paul is talking about. Remember, there were unacceptable sacrifices in the Bible. Because there are people who claim a sacrifice, but you couldn't, in the Old Testament, you couldn't bring a disfigured animal with a broken foot, or you, God would not accept that. In fact, he'd get angry. How dare you give me this three-legged cow and think that you give me the good one. You give me the best he wanted. And so here we see, he says another one here, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So the knowledge of Jesus as a friend and a person and Savior was the comparison now. That, yeah, he lost a lot, but that price is what it costs for me to know the surpassing worth of that. In other words, this word surpassing means the value of everything that was now counted as lost was far exceeded by the value of the knowledge of Christ, which we all experience and know. And the third one, he says that I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So here it is, very simple, as we see the exchange of values. What was formerly valuable and effective for placing him in a high level of belonging and acceptance now has become garbage in, to him, at least in the light of the values of eternity. There were a lot of people who held on to that honor. There are a lot of people that kind of skirt the edges. You see the likes of Nicodemus. And you see people um, functioning that were interested. And Gamaliel himself was very cautious about that. Because they were trying to retain their place in society. But Paul just laid it all down. And so the contrast of eternal and temporal is the key here. It's uh, to, to, to actually the key to surviving The mental and emotional difficulties of losing everything has to be this understanding the surpassing value that's garbage compared to Jesus. What can be compared, Paul says in another passage. Nothing can compare to it. Nothing will ever be as great as his love in this relationship. So he continues now. Number three, becoming like Christ can only happen through difficulties in life. Now he says here very clearly, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So becoming like Christ, it can only happen through these difficulties in life, but he says here, I want to know Christ. So Paul had a passion to know Jesus he, and we see his motivation of heart when he met him on the road, he didn't want to know him, at least not in the permutation of Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't want to know Jesus of Nazareth. He wanted to know God. And he was seeking God, but now in the reorientation, then he decided, yes, I want to know this Jesus at any cost. That was his motivation. It comes down to this. Do you want to know him? There's a lot of people that want to know about him, but not really know him. Because God's presence is as dis comforting and as upsetting as it is a blessing because you go deep enough into the presence of you really know him he is going to disturb your life and he always does sure he's going to comfort you he's going to bless you he's going to fill you but a lot of people when the disturbances start to come from the spirit that brings reformation they they separate themselves from that intimacy because they don't want to make those changes and so once again, intimacy depends upon the level of loss. Because it will require that you lay something down. But Paul is saying it right I want to know Christ. And he says he wants to know a couple of things. First, the power of the resurrection. Well, of course, everybody wants the power. The power is desired by all. I want to know the power. I can I can get the show of hands in any conference or any church service. It's how many of you want the power of God? Hallelujah! You know, and thousands of hands are, ah, praise God. Everybody's excited. But then I said, how many of you want the persecution it takes to get it? And you hear crickets. There's nothing. Because nobody wants to embrace persecution, but you cannot have the power. And that's what he says here. By the way, he wants to know Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. He ties them together with the conjunction, they are one. You cannot separate them. It'd be like separating milk into uh, whey and, you know, separate the uh, curds and whey and, and the liquid. Milk is milk. This is participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It's interesting here we see his participations in suffering, his attaining to the resurrection. This resurrected existence promised for those that endure the process of, of this evolution of our being is the fullness of becoming like Jesus. Because he's the firstborn among many brothers, he walked a trail for us to follow and says, do what I do. Everything. He said, unless you take up the cross, you cannot be my disciple. So everything he went through, we're supposed to go through. Maybe not quite exactly, literally. We're not going to rent some Roman soldiers to nail us to a cross to get exactly right. I mean, that would be a little extreme. But some of his people were, in fact, nailed to crosses. But we will suffer in other ways. We'll go through difficulties all for the sake of not backing down from who Jesus is for us. And really this discomfort will always come. Only through much tribulation can we enter the kingdom. Evasion or avoiding that discomfort that we experience for the sake of Christ will take away our ability to walk the path. In fact, it's the only way. That's why the principal phrase of the New Testament church was only through much tribulation can we enter the kingdom of God. Because by their track record, the only people who entered had tribulation. In fact, a lot of them were exiles already thrown out of Jerusalem. Now they are in the dispersion in other places starting to grow and get some life again and the persecution came and followed them and they had to keep going, keep moving like their patriarch Isaac who had to keep moving, dig another well, dig another well, keep moving. Number 4. Never think that we have already arrived. And he says, not that I have already attained or obtained all this. Or have already arrived at my goal. Now when he's saying this, he's saying he did not obtain the fullness of what he's looking for. Because really the last thing he mentioned was somehow partake in that resurrection. Somehow, I mean, he didn't even quite understand it. And if he didn't understand it, and he wrote so clearly about it in Thessalonians, right? Like, wow, the, just broke down. There's different kinds of bodies. There's like different kinds of meat. There's the meat of fish and the meat of this. There's celestial bodies. There's earthly bodies. You know, he went through this process describing that. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider, he says, well, first, he says, I, I but I press on. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Because Jesus did take hold of him on that road. Jesus came and got him, arrested him on the road, took him captive, blinded him, and then put him in a room for three days, whereby he yielded to the Lord, and because of that now, he's decided, I'm going to press on and take hold of the life that he planned for me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it because he knew he had a course to run. He had not arrived yet. He did not obtain. He's pressing on, taking hold. That's introspective. That's self-consideration. Never think that we've already arrived. After you've been in ministry for a while, as I have, I have fallen into the trap a couple of times of thinking that I actually know something couple of times I've fallen into that trap feeling really confident in my knowledge of the scriptures and my knowledge of the spirit and I even get a braggadocious about it. I don't mind bragging about Jesus and his presence that comes to me but in other realms I have like meeting brothers and sisters and pastors and leaders and immediately get that feeling I'm better than them. I'm better than this guy. I know more than he knows. That, that, Inside that pride of humanity. I have found that to be. that, And I realize and catch myself. Because when you do that. God will cause you to slip up. He will give you enough grease on your path. To make you slide. Because pride comes before the fall. And then you will realize who you really are. He he reorients you. Brothers and sisters. I do not consider myself to yet have taken hold of it. Number five. This is the last one. We must... Realign our value system of self to run the race to completion. Philippians 3.13 But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Well, he says it all here. Is one thing he does. Not several things he's doing. He's giving you the key on how to, how to accomplish this. One thing I do. First, forget. Second, make sure that you're always focused, always moving forward, eyes on the prize. Make sure that you're goal-oriented. I press on toward the goal. Everybody say, the goal. It's very important that when you just said that word, you know exactly what that goal is. If you don't, you need to take some serious consideration of your relationship with Christ and find out, what is my goal? What What is the goal Paul's even talking about? Pressing toward that the aforementioned resurrection from the dead is one of them but he's talking about a lot more than that i press toward the goal to win the prize the prize would be that eternal orientation for which god has called me heavenward the calling of god just brings our direction to that of heaven it turns us around on the road and and sends us on the right path that's going to heaven And then he finishes with that verse we started with. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I'm going to go forward. I press on uh, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavy word in Christ Jesus. So whatever is lost, fine, let it go. But you know what? You need to have lost something to understand this. I was talking to someone who had a brilliant career on their hands and was very well educated, lots of promise and all the diplomas and degrees and everything, and they were called into the ministry and the industry that they were involved in after they got called, that industry is one that grows so fast that their absence as serving the Lord within a year made them obsolete. You know how industries do that. They're developing so fast. You step out and come back, especially IT. You step out, you stay two years out of IT without growing, and go back, you are a dinosaur. And that's basically what happened to this person. And they were so excited about serving Jesus in the ministry, but by the time the ministry got really hard and disappointing, then they started to reflect on the things before. That's when they started thinking, man. And I noticed they were talking a lot about it about you know back when I was this and back when I did this, I could have done this, I could have done. and I realized, okay great see now you're identifying the sacrifice. First it wasn't even a sacrifice now it is and that's what Paul's doing in this passage. but so for him to deal with the feelings of this loss, that's what he's saying. I'm just going to press on. He called me heavenward, I'm going forward. I know he called me heaven that's where I'm going. I'll, I'll confess to everyone in this room. I am going heavenward to the thing he called me to do, this goal that I have before me. So what is your goal? Do you know your goal when you say goal? Yeah, I actually do. Is to bring the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to people all over the world. That's a general, but I know part of my purpose is to bring a revival to an entire nation, very specifically. I think you've heard me say that before. I believe God told me and I will see that. I don't know which nation it is yet, But I think I will pretty much be responsible for a revival to come to an entire country. Amen? Hallelujah. I don't need you to believe in it. I know it because of things. So that's a big goal, right? What was Paul's? Paul's stand before Caesar. The highest individual in the whole world. The highest ranking leader in the world. In the world. Way bigger than Trump. (laughs) Way more important than prime ministers and kings. Because he was the king of all the kings of the earth at that time. Paul said, I want to tell that guy about Jesus. I want to testify before him. Maturity here, he says. You who are mature should take a view of, uh, this view of such things. So maturity is defined here by the ability to view life and self from this perspective. As we grow in Christ, we often feel we've attained to certain levels. That's good, but it's kind of like watching a child graduate from kindergarten. And they're so excited and happy and, and the grandpa and grandma's clapping and they have the little hat on and uh, and it's like, oh, look, they made it. Finally, no more. It's over. No, of course not. It's so far. Everything we accomplish, every growth we have, we know there's so much more to go. Looking back, I remember my day from a graduation to Bible school. I thought I knew so much. Stood with that cap and gown and tassel ours was red i had a red gown and a red cap on my wife wore the same graduation gown and i remember thinking man we made it that's so crazy now because there were 30 of us standing there and to this day there's only two left so i know a lot of them maybe also were self-deluded at times and think we got this all figured out you can never get in that place Just keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to close with this passage and read it. Do we have it or we don't have it? I'll read it to you from here. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, that is, the great people of faith in the Bible, let's lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's the same for us. We keep our focus. Run the race. Keep your eyes on the prize and the goal. These are the things that we saw. Uh, it's a trap to use your natural word to assess your spiritual condition. You need to make sure your value system is eternal. We must... And that was the big difference between the two categories with Jesus values of eternity versus the values of earth. Because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the lawyers, the reason they didn't want to lose their places is because they had assets and power and authority. But those who had nothing easily accepted eternity. So we must realign our value system of self to that which prioritizes Jesus, becoming like Christ can only happen through difficulties in life, and we saw that. Never think that we've already arrived. There's more. There's always more. We're going to keep growing. So we must realign our value system of self to that which prioritizes Jesus. Amen. Why are there the same point there? That's not the point. The last one is we must realign our value system. Oh, earlier than the um, number three was it? No, it's the same point twice. I don't know why. It's something, that was a mistake in the thing. But anyway, it's still the Bible. Amen? <laughs> why don't we stand up? I want us to pray.